The world needs more listeners, doesn't it? And there's, what, 30-some people in here who have been listening intensely, intently for some time. So you're all hired. In Buddhism, we talk about the two wings of the bird, two wings of wisdom and compassion. So I'd like to touch on both of these and maybe lean into the compassion wing a little bit today. Talk about some of the manifestations of the bodhisattva of compassion and just stitch together a few bodhisattva teachings and practices on listening from a couple of modern-day bodhisattvas, as well as from our lineage. Listening is a practice of wisdom. We train the mind onto this very moment, this presence. We become aware of the the root, the foundation, the source. The silence. The silence behind and within all sound. Becoming one with sound. Absorbing world sounds awakens a Buddha right here. Absorbing world sounds awakens a Buddha right here. Listening is a practice of wisdom. Listening is a practice of compassion. To listen requires opening, opening the mind, opening the heart. Listening is receptive, it's also active in a way. We let our hearts be touched by sound. One person who's practicing with us online mentioned these moments of just utter tenderness and this touching of the heart. And they were saying, oh, that's soft. Let me be softer. What a beautiful response. Oh, that's soft. Let me be softer. This Buddha, the source of compassion, 
this Buddha receives only compassion. Buddha Dharma Sangha, just compassion. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, in the beginning, meditate on compassion. In the middle, meditate on compassion. In the end, meditate on compassion. So we have it on pretty good authority. Here's a poem by Lee Young Lee called One Heart. Look at the birds. Even flying is born out of nothing. The first sky is inside you, open at either end of day. The work of wings was always freedom, fastening one heart to every falling thing. Look at the birds. Even flying is born out of nothing. The first sky is inside you, open at either end of day. The work of wings was always freedom, fastening one heart to every falling thing. Born out of nothing, the first sky is inside you. And it's not nothing, but this is pointing us back to the source, to the root. I'd like to refer again to Shundo Aoyama's teaching on this that I read the other day. The wind goes its own way and is without form. We know it is there when we hear it in the grass or trees, see the clouds scudding overhead, or feel it blow against us. We cannot see or hear autumn or hold it in our hands, but when the leaves turn red and the ears of rice turn golden, they signal the arrival of autumn. When we hear the crickets chirping at night or an autumn shower striking the eaves or pick ripe apples and persimmons, we embrace autumn. Autumn becomes something to savor. The life and voice of the Buddha is everywhere in heaven and earth and is manifested in all things. Buddha is the name of something nameless. The life of the Buddha originally had neither name nor form and is in everything from a tree or a blade of grass to a tile or a stone. It becomes the wind in the pines or in a sail. It is born as man or woman. It is in good and evil, beauty and ugliness. Whatever form something takes, it manifests the Buddha. Whenever I'm so arrogant as to think that I have the power to give myself life, I think of this poem by a five-year-old child. 
The moment I say, tongue, speak, my tongue has moved. When I told my tongue to speak, what moved it? The power that moves my tongue before I do is a power that works without rest when I sleep and makes a flower bloom or a horse neigh. Whether we know it or not, the Buddha holds us in the palm of his hand and he is the power that gives us life. To symbolize and revere that power, people have given artistic form to what originally was without name or form by carving images of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in human form. In the way a child sometimes needs to call its mother, we call on Amida Buddha or Kanon Bodhisattva. Then everything is revealed as Amida or as transformations of Kanon. So I'd like to deepen that aspect of how we have given form to this, how the bodhisattva form can serve. Kanon is a bodhisattva. What's the bodhisattva? It means awakened being. A being that has fully realized liberation from suffering. Liberation from delusions and conditioning, our habits, views, and fixed beliefs. The clarity of seeing things as they truly are. And bodhisattvas carry on the work of Buddhas. They are dedicated to universal awakening, enlightenment for everyone. And they vow not to personally settle into final Buddhahood until everyone fully realizes liberation. They can take many forms. They can function in the midst of ordinary life. There may be quite a few of them sitting among us right now. We can practice with them in a literal way, calling upon them like angels or saints, or we can practice with them as archetypes, psychological or spiritual models for our own inspiration and a reminder for what we ourselves are capable of, how to be in service and how to act from wisdom and compassion. It can be very helpful to call on these beings to acknowledge something beyond this small self, to surrender, to ask for help. This is counter to much of our American cultural conditioning of rugged individualism. It's even more helpful to embody these beings. Sometimes people do because it's who we really are. Maybe you've noticed that whenever there's a news item about somebody saving someone from a burning house or jumping in a frozen river, 
and saving somebody or saving an animal, they're often interviewed by a reporter right afterwards. What do they always say? Well, I'm not a hero. I just did what anybody else would have done in the, in the same circumstances. And you can tell they mean it. You can tell that's their experience. And that is acting with this complete disidentification from that action before thought. An embodiment of altruism. It's who we are when our functioning isn't obscured by greed, anger, ignorance. It's our natural state. Everything is just interconnection. It already is. Since everything is nothing but connection, then kindness is natural. When it doesn't feel so natural, so available, we can cultivate this embodiment when we cultivate the qualities of the bodhisattvas. So the bodhisattva of compassion is known as Kanzayan, Kanon, or Avalokiteshvara, sometimes translated as observer of the sounds of the world, hearing the cries of the world, perceiver of the cries of the world. Avalokiteshvara can be of any gender. They're often depicted as female. And this was my own entry into practice. I went to a meditation retreat a women's retreat where they talked about Kuan Yin and I had no idea that there was a feminine expression in the Buddhist tradition. I had no idea. And that made it accessible to me somehow. So our different embodiments are important, can serve in important ways. Kanzayan can be depicted with a thousand arms. You may have seen those images. Each hand has a different implement that can be used in the service of alleviating suffering. Or she can be depicted with eyes on the palm of each hand, able to watch over all beings everywhere. She can be depicted with a, a vase, sometimes said to hold her tears of compassion, sometimes said to hold the waters of compassion. Her element is water, and her practice is listening. She's the bodhisattva of compassion. So what is compassion? We've been chanting suffusion with the divine abidings, the divine abodes. It's one of the four. Loving kindness is the general wish 
for well-being, for all beings indiscriminately. Compassion is that same wish that arises in response to suffering. It's that same goodwill, it's that same benevolence, that wish for well-being. And the response to suffering may result in some action, even, to alleviate suffering. Bhante Gunaratna says this about compassion, its definition. Compassion is a melting of the heart at the thought of another's suffering. Compassion is a melting of the heart at the thought of another's suffering. When we meet suffering, if it's not informed by or infused with the wisdom of total interconnectedness, our oneness, then we might end up what in what Trungpa Rinpoche called idiot compassion and what Ram Das called helper's prison. Helper's prison is, I'm over here, the helper, and you're over there, the helpee. And that actually isn't good for anybody. The compassion as a transaction it ends up being unsatisfying and limiting. There's a pressure on both parties to be some kind of way, helper, helpy. But when we meet from our fundamental interconnectedness, that we are already each other, There's just this rearranging of the universe all the time. There can be a mysterious lack of clarity between who's really helping and who's being helped. The emptiness of giver, receiver, and gift. And a blessed not knowing what's going to happen next. Somebody shared that one of their practices in this session was sitting with curiosity and sitting there just invoking this question, what sound will be next? How vibrant, how alive to have no idea what's going to happen. How true. Or to have no idea what's best no idea what's good or bad. Those judgments are just coming from a limited view. I'd like to share from Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow. It's an expression of gratitude for all the ways that we're supported, first by some of the inanimate objects, and then he goes on to say, how much more should we be kind and merciful towards human beings, 
even those who are foolish, though they become our sworn enemies, reviling and persecuting us, we should regard them as bodhisattva manifestations who, in their great compassion, are employing skillful means to help emancipate us from the twisted karma we have produced over countless kalpas through our biased, self-centered views. That's just another way to say this Buddha receives only compassion. This Buddha receives only compassion. Everything that happens can be compassion. The way that in retrospect we can understand how the greatest gifts of our lives came from the most painful tragedies. In this way, we can use our whole life in service. In the light, recall this. In the dark, recall this. Moment after moment, the true heart arises. Time after time, there is nothing but this. There's a famous koan that also references Avalokiteshvara. Yunyan's, the whole body is hand and eye. Yunyan Tanshung is chanted in our lineage. And among the koans, Yunyan and Daowu, who lived in the 8th and 9th century in Tang Dynasty, China. Their, their stories are often together, conversations between the two of them. Yunyang entered monastic life at age 16. He practiced with one teacher for 20 years and then many teachers until he found Yaoshan Weiyan, also chanted in our lineage. They say that Yunyan and Daowu, some stories say that they were biological brothers and some just refer to them as Dharma brothers. But they had a playful relationship in their conversations in these koans. So this one goes like this. Yunyan asked Daowu, how does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use all those hands and eyes? How does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use all those hands and eyes? And Daowu answered, It's like feeling behind you for a pillow in the middle of the night. Yunyan says, I understand. Daowu says, What do you understand? The whole body is hands and eyes. That's very well expressed, but it only says 80%. Well, what would you say, older brother? All through the body are hands and eyes. All through the body are hands and eyes. So Yunyan 
says the whole body is hands and eyes. Dawu wants to take it a little further throughout the body. And there's a commentary. When reaching for a pillow at night, there's an eye in the hand. When eating, there's an eye on the tongue. When recognizing people, on hearing them speak, there's an eye in the ears. This feeling behind you for a pillow in the middle of the night. This natural functioning of compassion. That life that moves the tongue before we speak. The thousand arms and hands could also be the Sangha. The eyes throughout the body being seen so deeply when the heart is touched. The eyes and the heart when it softens. The world needs all the varieties of Kanzayan's emanations. The world needs all of her arms and hands. The world needs more listeners. Maybe it's true that listening is the greatest gift you can give to someone, your attention, your time. To share this brief description of Avalokiteshvara by Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva represents great love, great compassion, and deep listening. When you manifest these qualities, you become the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara vows to listen deeply in order to help relieve the suffering in the world. To listen deeply, you must be 100% present. Listening with all your attention, you release the past and the future and focus entirely on the other person. We have this ability, but we seldom use it. We are usually lost in the past or the future and listening with just half an ear. The practice is to be present and to listen with 100% of ourselves. I thought that was so beautiful because it's exactly what we've been doing here for these many days. And what a gift to offer it to the world in this way. So one of the gifts to the world, another bodhisattva of our modern age, was a profound listener 
Well, I've talked about Carl Rogers and Dharma talks before, and it seems appropriate to invoke him again, particularly here, to talk about listening and offering listening as a profound gift to the world. Carl Rogers was born in 1902 in a suburb of Chicago when that was kind of more like rural. And he died in 1987. He was a psychotherapist. And he was one of the founders of the humanistic movement in psychology. And one of the people who truly changed the face of psychology so thoroughly, so completely, with the practice of deep listening. He grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household and described that his family was fairly cold and that he was often lonely. He was curious about science and kind of occupied himself by collecting and raising great night moths, like Luna moths. He would foster the supportive environments of these moths and allowing them to transform. Watching and offering them whatever they needed. So as he grew older, he tried to be a minister, but had a crisis of spirituality and ended up studying teaching and then ended up studying children's development. And he was deeply influenced by a social worker, a medical social worker who had the practice of reflecting back the experiences that she heard from the people she was working with rather than offering advice or trying to fix. And this was quite radical at the time. It seems common now, like, of course, this is important, but it was radical. So I want to share with you some of his teachings. And uh, every time I reread them, they, they get a little deeper for me. And, and in the context of this retreat, it's somewhat remarkable. He says, I believe I know why it's satisfying to me to hear someone. When I can really hear someone, it puts me in touch with them and it enriches my life. It is through hearing people that I've learned all I know about individuals, about personality, about interpersonal relationships. But there is another peculiar satisfaction in really hearing someone. It is like listening to the music of the spheres because beyond the immediate message of the person, no matter what that might be, there is the universal hidden in all of the personal communications which I really hear. There seem to be orderly psychological laws, aspects of the same order we find in the universe as a whole. So there's both the satisfaction of hearing this person 
and also the satisfaction of feeling oneself in touch with what is universally true. Sometimes, too, in a message which superficially is not very important, I hear a deep human cry that lies buried and unknown far below the surface of the person. So I have learned to ask myself, can I hear the sounds and sense the shape of this other person's inner world? Can I resonate to what they're saying so deeply that I sense the meanings they're afraid of yet would like to communicate as well as those they know? Have you ever been listened to like that? Maybe bring to mind someone you know that's a really good listener. And just reflect on how that is to be received in that way, to be known in that way. It's like listening to the music of the spheres. We can offer that to other people. The other important aspect, the other important teaching from Carl Rogers that I really want to share today is that this isn't just an outward-directed offering. It's important for us to include, not separate ourselves from the universe. (laughs) We can call that self-compassion or just compassion, whatever you want to call it. He says, let me move on to another area of my learnings. I find it very satisfying when I can be real, when I can be close to whatever it is that is going on within me. I like it when I can listen to myself, to really know what I'm experiencing in the moment is by no means an easy thing. But I feel somewhat encouraged because I think that over the years I've been improving at it. I'm convinced, however, that it is a lifelong task and that none of us is ever totally able to be comfortably close to all that's going on within our own experience. I feel a sense of satisfaction when I can dare to communicate the realness in me to another. This is far from easy, partly because what I'm experiencing keeps changing every moment. I experience something, I feel something, but only later, perhaps, do I dare to communicate it. But when I can communicate what is real in me, At the moment that it occurs, I feel genuine, spontaneous, and alive. It is a sparkling thing when I encounter realness in another person. It is a sparkling thing. Risk, vulnerability, willingness to feel, willingness to open the heart, willingness to allow the heart to be touched, willingness to let the heart break, willingness to hear the cries, willingness to cry. It is a sparkling thing 
it's not easy to know and be known. And yet, any other way, is that satisfying? How long can we go on like that? So turning this light, this attentiveness, this generosity towards our own experience, turning toward this realness, we feel the vulnerability perhaps that we did as a child. And that's still here in some way, this tender humanness. If that's difficult, you might think of a child that you know and the tenderness that they evoke in you or find a picture of yourself as a child. I had a training in play therapy years ago and the trainer talked about the main goal in play therapy, working with children, the, the, the message, the, the really the only thing that we're creating in the room is I see you, I hear you, I understand. That's it. And we can create that in this life. Carl Rogers said, I like it when I can listen to myself, to really know what I'm experiencing in the moment is by no means an easy thing. So one practice that we have is mindful self-compassion. And that's something that really is a more, just kind of a systematic way of listening to ourselves, right? If it's, that even seems too, uh, well, not clear enough. Sometimes I need a step-by-step So we can consider maybe three aspects of this practice. And the first is simply this turning towards, simply this awareness of suffering. Ooh, that's soft. Just that feeling, this tender humanity, being willing to feel. And once we do that, to not think, oh, I'm alone in this, but instead to know our deep interconnectedness, to allow it to be, it's not just your pain, it's not just my pain, it's not just the singular little pain, it's all of ours 
It's what we all share in this human experience. We were all children once. And so we then respond with kindness, whichever, however that shows up. That may be different for each of us. When we investigate with kindness, think of maybe a three-year-old or four-year-old that has maybe fallen and skinned their knee. And you might open your arms to them and say, oh, what happened? Tell me what happened. It's that kind of investigation. And from that, then what is needed? What kind of comfort, what kind of response? This is how to meet this tenderness. To practice with ourselves so that we can offer it to others. Thich Nhat Hanh has an invocation to Avalokiteshvara. He has an invocation actually to all the bodhisattvas, which are beautiful to read. And I believe you may all have one under your mat or not. Okay, good. I thought it might be beautiful to hear all of our voices invoking Avalokiteshvara in this way. And if I was musically inclined, I might turn it into a chant. Maybe Soten will do that someday. So let's invoke Avalokiteshvara together. A beautiful way to practice listening and practice asking for help. Ready? We invoke your name, Avalokiteshvara. We aspire to learn your way of listening in order to help relieve the suffering in the world. You know how to listen in order to understand. We invoke your name in order to practice listening with all our attention and open-heartedness. We will sit and listen without any prejudice. We will sit and listen without judging or reacting. We will sit and listen in order to understand. We will sit and listen so attentively that we will be able to hear what the other person is saying and also what is being left unsaid. We know that just by listening deeply, we already alleviate a great deal of pain and suffering in the other person. this just listening, as if somehow it's less than doing something. Just listening is doing so much. But the core quality is receptivity and attunement to the way things are. This is imperative before taking some action. This receptivity and attunement to the way things are. 
How will we know what action to take unless we're clear how things are? Then this action can be automatic and we can let go of the outcome. Nobody's beholden in this way with pressure on being a helper or being helped. It's just listening. It's just action. So I want to share one more story from Aoyama Roshi. It also happens to include a bird. And in this, she's offering a teaching about single-mindedness in relation to endeavor, to be wholehearted in our response. She says, uh, single-minded in, single-mindedness in relation to endeavor reminds me of a story in a lecture given by Zen master Kodo Sawaki, which I heard shortly after be- I became a nun. There was a forest fire in the mountains. Birds and beasts fled as fast as they could. Among them, there was a little bird that thought she would try to put the fire out. She dipped her wings in the river, then flew over the fire again and again, sprinkling drops of water. The other birds laughed at her and said it would only exhaust her and come to nothing. But she continued anyway. That was all one small bird could do. A heavenly deity felt sympathy for the little bird and sent a great rain that put out the fire. When doing something, we may ask ourselves if we will succeed. We may wonder about the results and what other people's reactions will be. Then we may become too afraid of making mistakes to do anything. Please do not underestimate your capacity. Please have faith in the incalculable causes and conditions that brought you here to these incredibly favorable conditions that not everyone has. And the best way to honor that is to use this time well to continue to just do your best, to continue to do your best. The world is singing you a song every moment. Thank you for practicing.